Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 35. I say uh, in the book, it's almost like we have two completely separate Christianities at this point. (laughs) You know, you've really got the one that is convinced that the Bible condemns homosexuality. And then you've got folks on the other side saying, what are you talking about? Dr. R. Marie Griffith is the John C. Danforth Distinguished Professor in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, She's also the director of the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics and is the editor of the center's journal, Religion and Politics. Uh, She obtained her undergraduate degree at the University of Virginia in political and social thought and then did her Ph.D. in the study of religion from Harvard University. Uh, Before moving to Washington University in 2011, she served as professor of religion and the director of the Women and Gender Studies program at Princeton, and then later as a Johnny Bartlett professor of New England church history at Harvard. She's the author or editor of six books, including God's Daughters, Evangelical Women and the Power of Submission, Born-Again Bodies, Flesh and Spirit in American Christianity, and her newly released book, Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about her new book uh, and the intersection of sex, gender, religion, and politics. Fascinating interview. So excited to share it with you all. Before we dive in, two things. Uh, First, I have two new people who hit the producer level on Patreon. Wanted to give quick shout-outs, Sean McDormand and Tim Schrader, uh, and then Natalie England, who has been at that level for a little while. So grateful for your support and for everyone's support over on Patreon. That's how I keep this show going. Uh, So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Second... I wanted to share with you about a new podcast that's starting this week, actually. My friend Debbie has been working really hard over the last many months to put this show together. It's called Kaleidoscope. Uh, And I'm going to play the trailer for you all because that explains it a little bit better than I can. So listen to this. Welcome to Kaleidoscope. I'm your host, Deborah Jian Lee. So I'm the only brown guy at this white Christian party. And this drunk guy stumbles towards me. He looks at the beanie I'm wearing and he says, why don't you take that hat off? You look like a terrorist. He very calmly took the Bible and then tapped on it and and showed me the verses that, you know, spoke to women shall have no authority over men in the church. You know, when you like are in such a sad, lonely place and you ask your deepest, darkest questions. Like, I'm black, I'm a lesbian and a Christian. Is there a church for me? I've been reporting on the margins of faith for years. All right, I'm just going to test the sound. And on this podcast, I'll explore questions of identity, existence, and social engagement. Um, So I thought we could just start by talking about the faith of your youth. Mm. I'll be hosting conversations with people from across the spectrum of belief and non-belief. And we'll travel to the moments that taught them how to engage life and the world in fulfilling ways. I was like, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to a queer bar as a queer person. And I'm just going to try it on and see how it feels. You realize that you were contributing essentially to white supremacy. It causes you to really second guess what you're giving your life to. Join me and my guests as we expand the conversation about how we can be more fully ourselves... So it did feel kind of weird that my first tattoo wasn't a Christian tattoo, um, but then I have this big gay tattoo. More fully awake. 
it's hard. I mean, it's hard to tell the truth, but it has never seemed more urgent than it does right now. And more fully engaged in this new era. We need to be actually challenging the policies that are hurting the marginalized. You'll feel all the feels. My heart's going like a rabbit. <laughs> and see the constantly changing pattern of existence. There's still so many things that are hard, but now I feel fantastic. So subscribe today and take a look into the kaleidoscope. Let the world see you. When they do, they'll never be the same. Like, chills, right? Like, I, the first time I heard that, I just sat on my couch and was like, I, I cannot wait to hear this. And, like, I, I mean, I asked Debbie if I could share this with you, but she didn't, she didn't ask me to share it. I just thought, everyone needs to listen to this podcast because it's going to be so good. Um, if you haven't read Debbie's book, Rescuing Jesus, How Women, People of Color, and Queer Christians Are Reclaiming Evangelicalism, like, go pick up that book, too. Um, I love her work. Uh, so anyway... That uh, that first episode drops on Friday, February 9th. Go subscribe to it uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it's going to be so good. Okay, Dr. R. Marie Griffith, Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. Uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Dr. Griffith, hi. Oh, hi, Matthias. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about this. Oh, it's it's really a pleasure. It's nice to know about your podcast. Yeah. So, so to start, this is a question I start every episode with. Um, but how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Yes. Well, I, I guess I would say I identify now as a progressive Christian, um, not one who's very active in church, as is true of many, many progressive Christians. I was raised Southern Baptist, actually, and so I came from a very, very conservative evangelical background and sort of left church altogether for a while and, and wound up coming back through the Episcopal Church, and uh, but have always really identified, I guess, with the teachings of Jesus, which I see as the core, you know, of Christianity, and which is boiled down to love one another. Um, and that turns out to be the hardest thing in the world uh, for human beings to actually do well. And uh, But that's really where I, I identify now. And you know, I think that my faith uh, has certainly, you know, carried me through, given me some sense of hope that, um, you know, maybe is, you know, it's hard to come by these days. Yeah. It's, I think you mentioned that like progressive Christianity and having a hard time in church. And I think like so many people, I know I relate with that. Like, <laughs> and I think so yeah. many people who listen to this podcast can absolutely relate with that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, even just me as a girl growing up and, and feeling, you know, at an early age, sort of the sexism and, the, you know, the kind of patriarchal uh, culture of the Southern Baptist denomination. And, um, you know, so I, I think that was part of my own struggle, uh, getting out of the church and then making some peace and finding different ways of being Christian and, and coming back in. Yeah, that's that's a journey I feel like so many people go on of, especially when, when you're kind of at the, at the edges of of patriarchy, like when you don't fit into that, it's a journey I think so many of us in our own particular ways have to make to escape that system. And then some of us find our ways back, but it's, right. a lot of um, people don't. Sure. A lot of people don't. Fair enough. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, 
so you just released a new book called Moral Combat, um, talking kind of about the, these these issues of like patriarchy and sexism and and everything that has kind of happened in American politics and the way that sex has influenced that and gender has influenced that like over the last hundred years. Um, and I, I just I just finished reading it. It was so fascinating. Um, and I think like, so, so you open the book with, um, women's rights and, and you track it all the way up to women's March of last year, um, and kind of tracking gender, sexuality, LGBT people, transgender rights. Um, and I, I think maybe a good place to start would be, I, I'm often in circles of, of like LGBT queer spaces where there are a lot of people of faith. Um, and so many of us, especially those of us, I think, in what I would consider my generation, those of us who were kind of born in the 90s, who don't have this kind of historical perspective of the movement, we always kind of look at each other and just look like, why do people hate us so much? Like, wh- why is this such a big deal? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you could like start with kind of walking us back into history a little bit. And, and I, I know like a lot of us look at the 70s, but you track it even further back, like to the 20s and even before mm-hmm. of what, how did this kind of all start? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, as you say, I had the same question. And the question that I started with was really, why has sex been such an obsession? And I mean, uh, women's sexual behavior prior to marriage, you know, female chastity, but of course, also, you know, LGBTQ people, any sort of non-normative sexuality outside of so-called traditional heterosexual monogamous marriage. Why has this been such an obsession over time for so many Christians and 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 really had such a vast impact on our politics and our polarization uh, that we live with now? And yes, the answer I eventually uh, came to was it didn't just start in the 70s or the 60s. You really have to go back to the fight over women's suffrage, which which uh, the, the suffrage side won in 1920 when women across America got the right to vote. But there had been a very active anti-suffrage movement composed, I, I, I want to say, by not only men, but women, too, who didn't want women to get the vote. And those folks were really angry uh, that women did get the vote in 1920. And, and, you know, so from there, I think you can really trace out deep divisions in America that really didn't exist prior to that. Um, there was kind of more of a consensus prior to that. I mean, you know, that it, gender looks like this and hierarchy and all of this. And of course, queer people did not fit into that, nor did feminists. But after 1920, the divisions become apparent and they just deepen and deepen over time with the fight over birth control and fights over interracial marriage, sex education, abortion, um, you know, so many things across the 20th century. And you know, the queer, I mean, I, I think your question of like, why do they hate us so much, which just makes me so sad, <laughs> you know, to yeah. hear it put that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that it has really gone a lot with, uh, you know, a hatred of, of women or a fear of, of women and, uh, you know, non-normative, uh, you know, people of, of many kinds. Yeah. And it's so interesting to kind of to link 
it all under this idea of patriarchy and, and authoritarianism and, and kind of like a hierarchy or power structure, at least, um, within the church. And it seems like all of these things, women's rights and, and LGBT people, is is a challenge to that power structure. Um, it seems like so much of this kind of revolves around who gets the power. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I sometimes say, oh, I don't want to just reduce it to power struggles. And I don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I want to say that theologies run deep and people have deeply held beliefs that they that they think come from their biblical reading or, or whatnot. But the power struggles have been real. And it's it's not a surprise that the same denominations and, and church communities that do not allow women uh, to serve in positions of senior leadership, attend uh, just about always to also be the same congregations that have a real problem uh, with queer folks, and um, you know have had different ways of dealing with both women and folks in the LGBTQ community over time. Sometimes uh, treating them as sinners or, you know, treating them with compassion and and other times treating them as sort of sick people to be ministered to or whatever, but always a problem in some way. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think these things are deeply, deeply tied together. Well, one one thing that I noticed in your book is is kind of how you, you highlight this this deepening gap between more conservative traditional beliefs and then more liberal and progressive beliefs and kind of how perpetually since the 20s they've been getting wider and wider apart um and then you highlight in in each one of these movements that you're kind of tracking the overall movement um these claims that like by challenging traditional teaching how it undermines like authority of scripture and the doomsday um kind of predictions that come out of that um which is something that i think so many of us are used to hearing like we are going to ruin America, ruin the world mm-hmm. if queer people get rights, if women get rights. Like, could you talk about that a little bit, those doomsday predictions? Oh, yeah. Great question. I, I think it's it, you're absolutely right that this has often been a way that some leaders, I think, have galvanized ordinary people in the pews and, and just across the country um, with fear. Um, and, and one of the greatest fears that's been repeated over and over again is, you know, the, the decline of America, this vision that America once was great and was the chosen nation of God. And now because of sin and specifically because of sexual sin, uh, America is falling into a decline from which she will never recover. And, you know, so the blame for that gets put on feminists, it gets put on gay people, it gets put, you know, on, um, you know, again, kind of folks outside of the traditional monogamous heterosexual marriage model. And just to give you some examples, um, you may know that after 9-11, Jerry Falwell was on the Pat Robertson's uh, television show a couple days later. And he said, you know, I... I blame, he basically said the feminists, the pagans, the gays and the lesbians, you know, all of those people, I point the finger in your face and say, you helped this happen. I mean, 9-11, the terrorist attacks. And his point was, God 
there is so much sin and America is allowing all of this sexual sin. God has turned his back on us and he will no longer protect us from terrorists like we see there. So we must repent and, uh, and, and turn around. So, and more recently, the shootings in Aurora, Colorado, the, even the uh, Newtown Sandy Hook elementary school shootings, Leaders like James Dobson and Mike Huckabee and others have stood up and said, you know, this we can look at our own sexual sin and our toleration for that as, as the reason why God is not protecting us from these uh, mass slaughters. I mean, it's astonishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, really. Yeah, it is so astonishing because I think <clears throat> I, 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 just, I just keep thinking about like how all of those claims and I think we see those those things kind of flying everywhere. It seems like any time something like catastrophic happens in the world and people love to blame gay people for that. And, and I think those of us who, who are gay and, and kind of like, or queer and kind of just like sit around it and look at them like, how is it our fault? Like, I know, I know. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, you all get blamed and then a tolerant nation, those even, you know, who might be straight might not be gay, but who are allies or who are inclusive, who, you know, want to be open uh, to people of all kinds, you know, get blamed too, because they're tolerating sin. So it's, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that theme has sort of recurred over and over again through, you know, what we call the religious right, uh, older figures like Tim and Beverly LaHaye from the 1970s, Um, You know, of course, Anita Bryant, who was the major anti-gay celebrity activist of the 1970s, you know, on up through today. You you write, I have a sentence here about around like LGBT rights. You write, this was not just a justice issue or an equal rights issue or a compassion issue. The matter was far deeper and far greater than those human interventions. The issue was obedience to core teachings that had been passed down for thousands of years, humble compliance with the will of God. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that highlights, I mean, those are the stakes I think that we're dealing with of a group of, well, both groups of people thinking they're following the teaching of God. um, But one of them saying this is what God requires, and it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I say uh, in the book, it, it's almost like we have two completely separate Christianities at this point. <laughs> you know, you've really got the one that is convinced that the Bible condemns homosexuality and other things, but, you know, that in particular. And, you know, they've got all their ways of interpreting particular passages and, you know, this to to say this is a central thing, you know, that it really matters to God. And then you've got folks on the other side saying, what are you talking about? Jesus, Jesus never talked about this. Jesus emphasized caring for the poor, loving the neighbor, you know, caring about people in prison and who are hungry. You know, this was not a big theme who was, you know, in love with whom or, you know, so you, you just really have this deep divide in, in what people think the core of Christianity really is. I'm, I'm thinking about the particular context that this that this podcast kind of sits in, which is people who identify as being of faith and who identify as queer or ally um, mm-hmm. or questioning or whatever, but that kind of locus. Um, and and I think 
sometimes I, I know I kind of got this idea when I first came out and was kind of realizing that I was gay and wanted to hold on to my faith that there were no other people in the world who were doing this kind of work and that this kind of queer Christian movement that's, I think, has risen up in the last 10 years, kind of like what I said in my first question, is a new thing. But you, you in, in your last chapter, talk about people who've been doing this work for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would, I would love if you could kind of talk about the, that intersection of faith and, and like minority sexuality mm-hmm. and how those have, have kind of been wedded together for quite some time. Absolutely. And one thing I want your listeners to really know is that queer people, queer, let me say that again, queer people of faith were instrumental to the larger LGBTQ rights movement from the very beginning. They've always been there. And let me just recommend two books uh, to to you and to anyone who's interested in looking at that. One is by Heather White called uh, Reforming Sodom. And it's really looking back at the Protestant, um, you know, the, the really Christian movements for gay rights and their, their activism in the public square in going back to the 1950s. And um, another is by Anthony Petro, um, who's sort of writing about Christians and the AIDS epidemic and, and you know, kind of people of faith um, who were so instrumental in, in, you know, in that movement and as part of the larger gay rights movement around that. So, you know, this is, there's a few famous people, you know, kind of like the, the head of the Metropolitan Community Church or folks like that, that everybody seems to remember. But there's a lot of forgotten names, too, of, of pastors, but also just ordinary people in the pews who were, and who many of whom, most of whom remained Christian, but oftentimes had to find new congregations when they felt unwelcome in their own. So queer people of faith have been a part of the larger gay rights movement from the very beginning. And that's something that I feel like, I mean, and I know I can only speak from my particular locus because I grew up in a, I call it like, kind of the borderlands of fundamentalism and like where all of that history around LGBT people was not taught. And this idea of like that you can be gay and Christian, you can be queer and Christian was just an impossible concept. It wasn't even a consideration. Um, I mean, it's so interesting to look at these movements. And, and I think for a lot of people, we did grow up in that conservative world to then go on that journey that you'd kind of talked about of, of maybe abandoning the faith or or seriously reconsidering the faith and coming back to it and finding the progressive movements, finding like the Episcopalian church, the breath of fresh air that comes with a different kind of Christianity is, is incredible. Um, and you write about how that that has been a part of Christianity for years as well, um, but is is a smaller part. And I, and I'm not sure what I'm asking in that. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, but I have th- I have things I can say about ahead, that. Yes. Okay. And it, it was I just want to say that was so beautifully put. What mm. you just said and. Um, 
and and to your listeners also, so many of whom have gone through that journey, you know, just know that people like me are with you. I mean, I do want to say that very, very strongly Um, because, you know, I have members of my own family too, my extended family, cousins and all who grew up in very conservative sort of fundamentalist worlds and and realized at some point in their teens uh, that they were gay and, and thought they couldn't fit and, you know, were afraid of their families, of their church communities. And so, you know, this is unfortunately still a common story and, and how many people have been shipped away to these ex-gay, you know, so-called reparative uh, programs and, and I think often been damaged um, by, by that. So it's, um, you know, it's been a, a deeply, to me, very disordered part of our culture to sort of shame people uh, that way. And um, so, yes, one of the people, again, that I write about and that I'd recommend to folks, um, some of you I'm sure know him, but is uh, uh, Gene Robinson, yes, who yes. was the first gay uh, bishop in the Episcopal Church. And I focus uh, a chapter on him because his own story is so compelling, and he is so compelling as someone who knew he was gay from college or younger, and he married a woman, and he was honest with her before they got married, and she said, you know, we'll try to work this out. They had two children and then couldn't couldn't stay together and divorced amicably, and, you know, he has this really beautiful story of how he came to terms with not believing that God loved him anyway, despite his sexuality, but that his sexuality was just as normal as anyone else's sexuality. It wasn't something to be ashamed of or to consider himself a variant of normal. You know, it was something core. And more and more, I think, people studying sexuality are saying sexuality is a spectrum. You know, the categories we've used for this really don't fit for an awful lot of people. And people who let themselves think about it and sort of dig deep into their hearts, it might not fit for most of us, these categories. So, you know, I I, I think there's that kind of opening up. And the progressive churches, as you say, have been better equipped, I think, on the whole, to sort of open themselves up to that uh, and and to really say, you know, we, we don't want to be obsessed with sexuality anymore. We want to welcome everyone. I, I'm curious, because um, you kind of, in the book, you kind of track, you start to track these two kind of different sides um, that are have, that have different views on sexuality. Um, we've talked about the progressive church. We've talked about the, the conservative traditional side a little bit um you you don't really get into this in the book a whole lot and because it's not this kind of book but if you had to give an answer on why do you think the the traditional and conservative side has has such a a focus and and resistance towards the sexuality what would you say are some of the reasons for that Mm-hmm. You mean homosexuality and well, homosexuality or even gender issues or like what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, there's there is a, a sort of um, you know, as I, I use the word patriarchy before, which is kind of an old fashioned word now and antiquated, but I, I do think that there is a tradition in those denominations of reading the Bible 
they think they're reading it literally, right? So we'll give them that, okay, you're reading some passages very literally and you're not, you're paying no attention whatsoever to other passages. So I question your literalism, but okay, we'll give you that for the moment. Um, and by their so-called literal translation, they see all kinds of places where, you know, women are to submit to male authority, uh, their husbands, pastors, and all of that. And that, that God has created gender in a very clear and binary way. And so anything that looks a little different, whether it's, you know, women who have more power than they're supposed to, or people who are attracted to folks of the same sex, or, you know, many other things, um, you know, seems to be against God's gendered plan. So I do think some of it is a commitment to a certain kind of reading of the Bible you know, that they may have learned as children. These things have gotten passed down over time, and so they just become common sense, so-called, you know, within those communities. And if you just start questioning that, people say, no, 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 you can't question that. You know, I know this is true. This is this is the Bible. And it's hard, you know, if you've been taught that since, you know, you were in Sunday school at three years old, uh, that's hard to unravel, you know, later on. So I, I do think that that's part of it, that there's something about homosexuality and about feminism that challenges that kind of notion of a, a God-created gendered order. Um, and so that is why those things in particular are so threatening and why sexuality then becomes so central uh, for a lot of uh, conservative Christians. Mm -hmm. You, you highlight in one of your chapters some of the work of Kinsey and his work around sexuality. And um, it, it, it seems like, I mean, there are multiple points of where stuff started to kind of break down. Um, but it seems like that was a, his work and his publication of his, his two studies of human sexuality caused some huge waves um, in the breakdown of what we know about men and women, especially women and sexuality. Um could you talk a little bit about that beginning of things breaking down and kind of the waves that happened out of that work? Oh, sure. Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey was a fascinating uh, figure. Uh, he was a biologist at Indiana University, and he just got really fascinated by people's sexual behavior and, and sort of shifted his entire research agenda in that direction and uh, gathered teams of researchers to go around the country and interview men and women about their sexual behavior, what they'd done prior to marriage, what their desires were, you know, now, and, you know, all kinds of things, current practice and all of that. And so in 1948, he published his first study on men, and 1953, he published one on women. And both books essentially argued that people were having a lot more sex and a lot more different types of sex. And they had a lot more desires of, of wide variety than they were really letting on or than, you know, the larger American mores really permitted. And, um, and he had a great deal of evidence, you know, for, for this. Uh, he, he calculated that about half of American women were not virgins when they got married, uh, for instance. And lots of women prior to marriage had had um, 
same-sex uh, sexual experiences, and, and so had men. So this kind of blew the roof off of, you know, kind of these common assumptions and politeness around uh, sexuality, and there was a great deal of reaction against him uh, uh, in very conservative Protestant and Catholic circles. So uh, Billy Graham, the very young Billy Graham, uh, railed against Kinsey and said he was probably a communist, and that was why he was, you know, uh, telling people these lies. Um, and uh, various Catholic leaders, you know, also sort of preached against Kinsey because they felt like he was, you know, essentially recommending uh, all of these um, sexual behaviors outside of marriage and was going to, again, destroy, destroy America, um, you know, by, by kind of recommending immorality and debauchery and all of that. So it was, a, it was hugely controversial. And those studies, by the way, remain controversial today. He is not forgotten in, in those circles. And there's all sorts of rumors of him, you know, being a pedophile and being, you know, just this kind of just awful human being. I mean, stories that have really, in some cases, been entirely made up out of nothing to discredit everything he ever did. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I think, I, I mean, I, I remember learning about Kinsey growing up. Like I was, I was also homeschooled. Like I was, I was a product of the conservative machine um, and learning about Kinsey, like he was an awful person the way I was taught. Um, and it, it was so interesting to, to read some of your work around him because it seems like, I mean, he was just trying to study what was actually happening and then talk about it. Right. Yeah. Oh, that is so interesting because I, I know there's all these kind of anti-Kinsey books out there yeah. that get circulated in, in fundamentalist and, and Catholic circles alike, just like there are against uh, Margaret Sanger. She's okay. another kind of enemy um, in those in those circles about whom many lies have been told. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, you know, I, I think that he had a stake in saying that people were really much more free and open in their in their sexual beliefs and behaviors than um, than we thought they were. I, th I think that was a finding he was glad to, uh, to have, but um, I don't think he he was driven, you know, only by that. I think really he was discovering when he first started asking people these questions, he was sort of amazed at how many people. Uh, how many women had had sex prior to marriage, and were finally admitting that, you know, to an interviewer. Um, so yeah, he he really uh, he strove to tell the truth. I mean, he really emphasized that that he really wanted good data, uh, and was trying to tell the truth. And the truth was, uh, as he saw it, people are being way too hypocritical, and um, you know they need to own up to to the realities they're living. Can you talk about a little bit? Because you get into this in the book too. How how did the church then, I mean, you mentioned conservatives kind of railed against it, um, but then there were other churches who did kind of step in and accept his work and, and work alongside Kinsey. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, the book's subtitle is How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. Mm -hmm. And this is just a perfect example of that. So even as he's, Kinsey was getting condemned by the, um, you know, conservative Protestant and Catholic leaders, um, many more, main, you know, I wouldn't even call them progressive at that time, but sort of more 
mainline Protestant leaders, Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, definitely Unitarian, um, were writing him fan mail and writing him uh, letters that I had access to. And I've read all of this correspondence that he saved from ministers in tiny towns all over the country, you know, everywhere, not just, you know, New York and San Francisco, um, who were saying, thank you for writing these books because we know that our parishioners have been struggling secretly with, um, you know, their fear they're not living up to the moral law. And, you know, this, now we can, as pastors, we've got, we've got tools. We can talk to them about that and say, you know, you're not abnormal because you have desires. A man has desires for another man, you know, or you're not this horrific sinner who had sex uh, prior to marriage, you know. And so all, you know, the progressives really begin shifting their own sense of sexual morality to some degree and kind of opening up. And they invited Kinsey to come to their congregations and, and speak. So he he traveled all around the country speaking to YMCA groups and and church groups and and Jewish, uh, Jewish groups as well, synagogues. Um, to, to sort of try and give religious leaders a sense of what was really going on in America so that they could then use that in, in a pastoral context as really quite fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm sitting here um, thinking about like this, I mean, this divide. I mean, it's so clear and I think obvious and I think so many of us have somatic and and felt experiences of what living in such a divided culture feels like around these issues of sex because of the damage that they've wreaked um and 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 i'm also curious like I, i i always personally have a hard time with kind of setting up dualisms of of traditionalist and 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 progressive and 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 like they're they're there clearly they're there um was there a group of people who bridged those worlds like or has this divide just kind of been I mean are we just sitting in the middle of a huge divide right now oh I love that question Matthias um because in many ways I think when I began writing the book what I really wanted to do was bridge that divide. I mean, I wanted to bridge that divide. I, I wanted to sort of communicate each side to the other, you know, yeah. and say, and to really say most people are in the middle and, you know, there's really not this divide once you dig deep. But really, the findings were clear, you know, that people pretty much kind of, you know, wound up sort of really on one side or the other of so-called traditional morality, you know, and, um, and that division explains so much about our current politics. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, it's bound up in ideas about gender roles and gender hierarchy and all of that. These things are all deeply related. Um, I have no doubt that there's a lot of people who in their hearts are kind of in the middle or they can see both sides or, you know, all of that. But, you know, what I seem to find over and over again was the, these issues are so fraught and so emotional, uh, for people that they kind of wound up whether they wanted to be or not in one camp or, or the other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think because I think it's so core, like so much of this gender sexuality i mean they're they're core constructs of to who we are as people um not just i mean like you said it's not just a compassion issue it's who we are as people um Mm -hmm. and 
I, I, like I, 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 I always get so hesitant with the like, because I, I think natural desire is to demonize one and, and praise the other, and and um, and it's hard not to when mm-hmm. such core. And I think both sides do it all the time. Like it's there. They, they absolutely do. And, you know, this is an analogy to this is the abortion debate, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, abortion is not only about sexuality, for sure. I mean, life, you know, is does life begin at conception or not? That's kind of the core question. Does life begin at conception so that therefore abortion is murder? You know, you, a person's answer to, to that is is really yes or no. You know, do you believe that or do you not believe that? And, you know, it becomes this, th- that's a debate that is also just so deeply uh, divided along these lines. So I, I do write that about that in uh, Moral Combat as well, because I think that that's, you know, been one of the deepest wedge issues in our politics in, in recent history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you use that term wedge issue, um, which is so many of these issues are. Um, could you talk more about the function of wedge issues in politics? What, how have those functioned? Yes. Well, this is where, you know, I think it's very fair for us all to be cynical, okay? Yeah. Because yes. <laughs> I think that there are opportunistic, um, you know, politicians who uh, realized that these were these issues were great ways of galvanizing voters. I mean, it's as simple as that. And so they collaborated with, you know, religious leaders who, who were, you know, kind of came to be on their side and, um, you know, really was, were able to massive movements. So let me give you a concrete example of that. In 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court, the vast majority of Southern Baptists in America, white Southern Baptists, were in favor of legalized abortion. They wanted abortion to be more accessible to people. They described it as an issue between a woman and her conscience. And uh, 90, I think 90% of Texas Baptists, Texas Baptists, were in favor of legal abortion. Wow. So in 1973, when Roe v. Wade came down, the only people really strongly on the pro-life side, for the most part, were Catholics. Protestants across the political spectrum, you know, were very much in favor of having at least some degree of legal abortion. Well, we know what happened after that. Uh, by 1979, Jerry Falwell has the moral majority, and the anti-abortion movement is huge and helps to elect uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980 and has been part of the Republican voting bloc ever since. So that's a great example, I think, of how some political leaders saw abortion as something that they could sort of, you know, turn conservative Christians around on and and really pull them into their coalition. So we know that today all kinds of uh, very conservative Christians, abortion is sort of their, their single most important voting issue. Mm-hmm. So it's been very successfully uh, utilized as a, um, as, a, as a wedge issue that's been politically incredibly successful. So I think maybe maybe to end, um, you, you you end the book with uh, the Women's March uh, of last year, and I mean one just happened this year, um, and and kind of 
I wouldn't say that you end the book on a hopeful tone, um, <laughs> but, but you do write um, finding a way to live together despite our deep differences demands participation in a larger project of reckoning, engaging, and willfully empathizing with others in our common humanity. Um, and you say maybe we'll, we'll get there one day, but we have to understand precisely how and why our divisions got so deep. Um, but I, I'm curious about, and, and you kind of say this, but what, what do you see as a way forward? Is there a way forward in trying to bring this gap back together? Yeah. That's a big question. <laughs> it, it's a huge question. And, you know, at that time that I wrote that, um, it was right after um, Donald Trump's inauguration to the presidency. He'd just been through the 2016 campaign. Um, and, you know, I personally was feeling somewhat hopeless. But also, as the Women's March showed, and that attracted, of course, not only women, but people across just a wide range of, you know, identities um, and who were sort of marching for a whole range of progressive causes, not only uh, women's issues. Um, it seemed like, you know, there was this mass movement and that the numbers were on that side of kind of being able to move forward uh, in some way. And yet, um, and I guess I still had some hope, having come out of the evangelical world myself and really loving the people, many of the people I grew up with in church, even if I don't agree with them theologically, I, I see them as good people, many of them. So I've always wanted there to be the bridge you're describing and sort of a way forward. Um, the thing that has discouraged me most has been the continuing conservative evangelical support for Trump, no matter what, no matter how racist, how sexist, you know, how uh, horrible he is in his marriage to Melania, even, you know, with porn stars and paying them off and just, just criminal seeming behavior, the continued um, refusal to uh, sort of second guess their support for him is discouraging to me because I think on, based on those grounds that that is in part about patriarchy and seeing him as this great patriarchal male leader. Um, and so that, that discourages me because that seems to me like something that uh, will prevent us from moving forward together. But I tell you in your generation, things are different. Mm. And I'm very hopeful about younger people and uh, you all who I, I see as really even very conservative folks being much less attached to some of those sort of gender structures. I, I really think that might be true. So looking farther into the future, a couple of decades, you know, th that does give me hope. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, and you, you mentioned Trump and, and like, it, it's so interesting to be, to be, living in this era, I know I said it, we were wrapping up, but you brought this up and this is so interesting because your whole book, you talk about this sex being such a core issue and, and this kind of this quest for morality. And I think it's, it's so interesting in the last like two years, it seems like that has almost completely flipped in, in a way that f like reeks of hypocrisy. Um, and, and you mentioned patriarchy. Would you say that those two things are tied? 
Absolutely. I think what we're seeing is that the deeper strain by far is patriarchy. That, you know, folks who have, have counseled sexual morality forever are now willing to pretty much put that aside. Uh, they put it aside for Roy Moore, the Alabama Senate candidate, you know, and they completely put it aside for Trump in favor of something else. And what is that something else? It's It looks very much to me like you know, patriarchy. Now they say it's more about, well, God chose him. You know, we, we don't like that behavior either. God chose him. And I, I believe they don't like that behavior, but they're willing to tolerate it and celebrate him in an almost worshipful way at times. Um, and I think it's partly because of what he resent, represents as, as kind of patriarchy over and against, you know, these other forces that are, that are trying to dismantle that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Dr. Griffith, thank you so very much. Oh, really great to talk to you. Great yeah. questions, Matthias. It's been such a pleasure. For me too. Be sure to pick up a copy of Dr. Griffith's new book, Moral Combat, How Sex Divided American Christians and Fractured American Politics. She's on Twitter, at Armory Griffiths. Chorology is on Twitter and Instagram, at Pod, or you can tweet me directly, at Matthias Roberts. Quirology is produced with support from Natalie England, Sean McDormand, Tim Schrader, and other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Quirology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. One really easy way to help support Quirology is by leaving a review. Do that right in your podcast app, or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review, and it'll take you right there. As always, I love to hear from you. If you have ideas about what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye.